Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. Live from New York, I'm Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Beirut Blast calls for accountability on the first anniversary. Chip crunch, Toyota and Honda warn the semiconductor shortage will continue. And the vaccine vanguard, the U.S. asset manager offers cash for jabs. It's Wednesday. Let's make a move. Welcome once again to First Move, where we have entered the dog days of summer, at least for global markets. Stocks remain near records and investors hope for an August where the news is all bark and no bite. As my little furball Romeo pictured here will tell you, B stands for Blockbuster Q2 Earnings, the ride-hailing app Lyft, one of the latest firms to impress, yet labour shortages remain a bone of contention. We'll hear from Lyft's president later in the show. A For abundant stimulus, the U.S. Senate could approve and send to the House a $1 trillion infrastructure bill within days. R is for retreating inflation hopes, as the Fed likes to say, transitory price bites. And K is for kicks, regulatory ones. After months of action, will Beijing pause for the summer or will the fur fly once again? For Romeo, as you can see there, there's plenty of fur and there's actually no bark, which is a miracle for me. U.S. futures, meanwhile, on a slightly shorter leash after yesterday's record close for the S&P 500. Disappointing data, though. Pre-market, a new read on private sector jobs growth has come in way below expectations, but new all-time highs for markets, meanwhile, in Europe. Investors wolfing down stocks over in Asia, too. Markets mostly higher after Beijing state media dialed back its attack on the gaming industry. If you remember, we spoke about it yesterday. Tencent actually rose 2% after Tuesday's sharp drop as a result. But of course, new COVID restrictions in China are raising fears about slower growth in the region. And that's where we begin today's drivers. China is tightening overseas travel restrictions as the Delta variant breaks through the Great Wall. The country is reporting 71 new local infections over the past 24 hours. That's actually the highest daily total since January. It comes just six months before the Beijing Winter Olympics, as David Culver had reports. Chinese state media calling it the worst outbreak since Wuhan. Officials mobilizing across China to stop the rapid spread, linked in part to the Delta variant. A handful of confirmed COVID-19 cases surfacing from Shanghai to Beijing. Worrisome given China's zero cases focus. 
Here in the capital city, you have tens of thousands of residents under strict lockdown. This is one of those communities. The reason we're not getting out is to not expose ourselves to what is a lockdown neighborhood. Behind these barriers, you have folks who are abiding by the stay-at-home orders and who are once again having to undergo mass testing. The warning from officials is eerily reminiscent of 2020. A Beijing government spokesperson vowing to block the virus from spreading further within Beijing at any cost. It's leading to a halting of travel in China's capital from affected areas, the list of which is quickly growing. Among the cities with new outbreaks, Wuhan. After roughly a year of enjoying life near normal, the original epicenter of the coronavirus outbreak is now testing each of its more than 11 million residents. Families canceling summer travel plans, opting instead to stay home. Several communities sealed off. Thousands taken into government quarantine for observation. The lockdowns, the mass testing, strict contact tracing through smartphones, all being enforced once again. It might all sound extreme, but China's domestic containment efforts, along with its tight border restrictions, seem to have been working. Aside from a few isolated cluster outbreaks, life here had mainly returned to the way it was pre-COVID. But officials say a commercial flight from Russia changed that. The plane landing in the eastern city of Nanjing on July 10th, suspected of carrying the highly contagious Delta variant. On July 20th, officials confirmed Nanjing airport workers subsequently tested positive. Two days later, thousands of tourists visiting the central Chinese city of Zhangjiajie crowded together to watch live shows. It's believed some of those attending had been infected traveling through Nanjing. Cases then surfaced in several major cities and have since spread to dozens of others. As of Tuesday, the virus has been detected in 16 provinces across China. It is the greatest test yet of China's post-outbreak containment efforts and puts into question the effectiveness of Chinese-made vaccines against variants like Delta. While the official number of confirmed cases is still in the hundreds since July 20th, all of the airport staff in places like Nanjing were reported to have been fully vaccinated with Chinese vaccines. Still, many got infected. Even more concerning, several of those sickened are reported to be in severe condition. It has sparked uncertainty and panic buying in some cities, grocery store shelves quickly emptying as folks prepare for this latest outbreak to worsen and new stay-at-home orders to take effect. This latest outbreak coinciding with the countdown to the 2022 Winter Olympics. Beijing gearing up to host the world. The Games scheduled to start in six months. The spectator infrastructure is in place, but this new variant threatening to leave stands near empty for yet another pandemic Olympics. David Culver, CNN, Beijing. Let's move on. Remembering over 200 people who lost their lives in a massive explosion a year ago today in Beirut. Today's march and vigil comes as the official investigation remains stalled. But there are new calls for answers and for accountability. Ben Weedman joins us now from Beirut Port. Ben, and we're no further forward with answers. We have no sense of accountability, no understanding of why repeated warnings were ignored too. And it comes amid a unravelling of the economy, a financial and, and political meltdown, I think, as well. What will we see today, Ben, and what are people saying? 
Well, I think what we're going to see are massive protests at the government's inability uh, not only to get to the bottom of what happened here on the 4th of August uh, last year, but in general, the failure of the state writ large to provide the most basic services, such as medicine, such as electricity, such as running water, all of which are in short supply uh, here in Lebanon. It's worth noting that just a few days after the blast, uh, the Minister of the Interior, Mohamed Fahmi, who's now the caretaker Minister of the Interior, came out of a cabinet meeting and said, maximum within five days, those who are responsible for the blast will be held accountable. Here we are almost a year later. Nobody has been put on trial. Uh, no senior official has been detained or jailed. Some have been detained for months uh, but they are minor players in this drama. And what is increasingly clear as time goes by is that almost every level of government here, multiple ministries, were well aware of the danger posed by the ammonium nitrate that was in what's called Hangar 12, which is just a few hundred meters from where I am here. They were well aware that it was there, that it posed a mortal danger to the inhabitants of this city. And keep in mind, within a mile radius of that hangar live about 100,000 people. And therefore, the government was completely indifferent to the danger posed by that ammonium nitrate. And what happened, happened. And until now, no senior official has come out and apologized or taken responsibility or really actually just come out into the street uh, to talk to people because the level of anger, resentment, outrage at the failure of the political elite here is palpable. And uh, they just people are utterly, utterly fed up. Julia? Yeah, I can see that, Ben, and, and words failing you at the end there, and I think they fail us all on this, and um, lack of progress, lack of accountability, and the economy in devastating shape too. Ben, thank you for that. And later this hour, we'll hear more about the damage to Lebanon's economy, and in particular, tourism. All right, let's move forward. Toyota, the world's biggest automaker, posting a record quarterly profit as car sales surge, but the stock closed lower in Japan amid concern about the global chip shortage. Claire Sebastian joins us with all the details. Claire, it's not new in terms of uh, the concerns going forward. Sales, though, for these guys almost recovering to pre-pandemic levels, but it's raw material costs, it's chip shortages, I think, that are filtering into the forecasts and giving people concern. Yeah, Julia, I think this confirms what we already know about the extreme mm. turbulence of the car market right now. I think the difference with Toyota uh, is that they have done an extremely impressive job mitigating all that and delivering a 72% increase in sales and net income five and a half times bigger than it was in the same period last year. So extremely impressive profitability given that turbulence. But of course, they are not immune. They talked about the semiconductor shortage. We know they've had to shut down production in some plants in Asia because of that. There's also higher materials 
scale costs that they talk about. There's the resurgence of COVID-19 in some parts of the world. But they have been able to deliver these results because of the surge in demand that they've that they've been seeing. And because of the, the, the way this company has prepared for this. Interestingly, Julia, Reuters reported earlier this year that, that Toyota, unlike many car makers, had actually been stockpiling chips for years in a, in a business continuity plan that they put together after the Fukushima earthquake. So they were in many ways well prepared for this. They also said that they are allowing their dealerships, for example, in the US to, to, to sell cars, not just from their ground stock, but from the pipeline. They're allowing them to trade cars between dealerships to get those cars to customers. So they are seeing uncertainties going forward. That's why we see the stock down a little bit. That's why they didn't change their forecast. But given the fact that the stock is up some 25% this year, the little dip today is fairly minimal. I'd read that too. It's quite fascinating in light of what we've seen through the pandemic, that all businesses, not just the automakers, are doing a whole scale rationalisation of their supply chains and working out where the blockages are to try and protect themselves. I think better in future. In this case, to your point, they'd struggled in the past in light of Fukushima and decided to have several months of supply of chips already in place. But this, and you've already pointed to it, we're not hearing this just from Toyota. We've heard it from BMW this week already, GM, before the opening bell today, all these automakers to a greater or lesser extent are saying this is going to impact output and therefore numbers in the in the coming quarters. Yeah, you know, we've seen it from the automakers, even Tesla, not immune, uh, even though they are in many ways better positioned as well, given the fact that they're in, in many ways a technology company. We've seen it in the CPI numbers, Julia, uh, used car sales, which is essentially a trickle down from the new car market up 45% uh, in 12 months in June. That's the highest number Ever. So this is something that's going to continue to persist for the auto market. Uh, Goldman Sachs says that they don't expect inventories to recover to their 2019 levels until after the end of next year. So more like 2023, although they do expect that this month, August, will be the, the bottom of that in terms of inventory. So look for numbers to slightly improve over the next few months as, uh, as demand sort of dies down and the supply chain issues gradually work themselves out. But this is something that automakers clearly are going to be dealing with for some time. Yes, not going away anytime soon. Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. All right, let me bring you up to speed now with some of the other stories making headlines around the world. The Taliban are claiming responsibility for a deadly car bombing in the capital, Afghanistan. The blast went off near the acting defence minister's residence, but officials say he wasn't hurt. At least eight civilians were killed and around 20 wounded. Afghan security forces say they killed the four attackers. CNN's Clarissa Ward joins us now live from Kabul with more details. Clarissa, great to have you with us. Um, The first question, I think, is what about the security forces that were surrounding or nearby this residence? What happened to them? But I know you were close by and this was a sizable explosion. What more can you tell us? Yeah, that's right, Julia. It was about 8 p.m. last night. We heard a loud explosion that shook the Capitol. We ran up here to the roof to see what was going on. Uh, There was sporadic gunfire. There was an air raid siren that was wailing. There were two more uh, secondary and tertiary explosions. They were smaller in size, but still indicative of the fact that this was a complex attack and really striking fear into people in Kabul, because while there have been huge Taliban gains, 
gains and a lot of momentum in their favor on the battlefield, things have been relatively quiet here in the capital. A number of people told us this was the largest blast that they had heard here in Kabul for several months now. We know that the Taliban has claimed responsibility for the attack. As you mentioned, they did not manage to injure uh, the intended party, who was the acting defense minister. They did, however, manage to kill eight civilians. And we heard another explosion this morning. Not clear if the Taliban was responsible for that. But again, another grim reminder that the situation here can very quickly change. One thing that I should note, Julia, that was really unusual and that I, I've never heard before in, in my time covering Afghanistan, after that large complex attack around the defense minister's home, we heard this sort of cacophony of people across the city all chanting Allahu Akbar, which means God is the greatest. But in this context, they were chanting it in defiance against the militants. They were chanting it in support of the Afghan security forces. And it was kind of a, a moving moment to see a capital essentially come to together and say that they're uncowed, that they refuse to be afraid, and that they want to fight back uh, against the Taliban as much as that may be a very difficult task to do, Julia. Yeah, close award. Thank you so much for that update there and stay safe, please, in Kabul. Okay, Turkey is still battling 11 wildfires in six provinces after bringing dozens more into control over the past week. One fire threatened to engulf a thermal power plant. At least eight lives have been lost and thousands of houses damaged. Police have arrested one person in relation to the wildfires. Belarusian Olympic sprinter Kristina Timonovskaya was seen boarding a plane in Tokyo bound for Vienna today. The athlete was set to compete in the Olympics but asked Japan for political asylum after she said team officials were forcing her back home for criticising Belarus's sporting authorities. Olympics officials are investigating the case. OK, so to come on first move, vaccine bonuses at Vanguard. The money manager goes for the carrot over the stick as companies race to make returning to the office safe. And a chauffeur crunch at Lyft as riders return before drivers. I speak to the president about the road to recovery. That's next. Stay with us. A blast, a shockwave and then horror. Chaos and confusion in Beirut a year ago. Over 200 people lost their lives, 6,000 more were injured and 300,000 displaced from their homes after hundreds of tons of volatile chemicals exploded at the port of Beirut. Now, while the investigation remains stalled, the economic meltdown continues. The World Bank describes Lebanon's economic crisis one of the worst in modern history, a disaster even before the blast happened. The bank estimates real GDP contracted by over 20 percent last year. The currency has plunged in value by a shocking 90 percent since late 2019. And UNICEF says 70 percent of the population simply don't have enough to eat. My next guest says the Lebanese hospitality industry should be one of the pillars of the economy and is now the country's most vulnerable sector. Pierre Ashka is president of Lebanon's Hotel Federation for Tourism, and we spoke to him a year ago. And Pierre, fantastic to have you with us. I'm grateful for your time. I vividly remember speaking to you a year ago and you were telling me 90% of the hotels were impacted. You were desperately trying to move people out. And that, of course, was an industry already being uh, faced by the, the consequences of COVID and, and economic struggles. Fast forward to today, how are you doing? You know, the problem 
is not solved. No. We don't have uh, a cabinet. We don't have rulers. And uh, the investigation is without any result. So the hotels are still closed. We used to have 2,060 restaurants, pubs, and clubs who were hit by partially or totally from the blast. And you used to have also 153 hotels. We still have around 100 hotels who are still closed because the reports, the investigation is without result. So the insurance are not paying because we don't have any result from the investigation. We might have some insurances who are paying, but with a compromise of 50 or 40% of the total value of the blast. So we are in the uh, most uh, uh, un un unbelievable uh, pay in, 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 in our life since 50 years. We haven't seen such a, a, a form of, uh, of disaster like we, use, we have now. Poverty is over 50%. Uh, and uh, the national and social and political are a suicide for us. Because we don't have, we are in a bus without a driver. We have a call to our diaspora in the old, all over the world. And they responded to this call. And they are coming to Lebanon for this summer. And they are spending and helping their people in Lebanon. But unfortunately, till now, we don't have a, a, a cabinet, we don't have a government, we don't have any support from anybody. The only support we used to have during this year is uh, from uh, the NGOs all over the world, helping the people and poor people to recover a little bit. Unfortunately, we are under the uh, uh, political problem of the Iranian and Hezbollah problem. We I are Pierre, in a Pierre. problem. It's a problem. It's a political problem, not only financial problem. We don't have any problem to receive and to be a big destination for tourism. The only problem we have is political and a, a kind of uh, uh, memes of the Hezbollah on the government. They might want a collapse of uh, the Lebanese society to uh, impose a new rules, a new Lebanon. We know and we are sure that we are going to, uh, to uh, we are not accepting this, and we are going to confront all these 
mummies of the Hezbollah on Lebanon. Pierre, I, I, I hear what you're saying, and it's, it's a mixture of things, and it's years in the making in terms of a lack of leadership, a lack of ownership, a lack of ability to tackle some of the structural issues, the economic issues in Lebanon too. I want to take you back to what you were saying, though, about some of these hotel owners that haven't been able to get insurance, that their businesses are still closed. I mean, these are, these are families, I'm assuming, too. How are they, how are they surviving as you said, half the people right now in Lebanon are below the poverty line. How are these people and families surviving? Look, they are not surviving. They are fighting to survive. Mm. And we are fighting to, to, uh, to exist. And we are going to exist because Lebanon doesn't lose anything from his people, from his diaspora. And the diaspora, all our immigrants are helping Lebanon. We received this year around $7 billion from our diaspora. And we have a lot of people, of graduated people who left Lebanon. Uh, they are working all in the Arab countries in Europe, but they are sending uh, to their families uh, the uh, dollars and the uh, the foreign currency to help their people. And we have also a support of a lot of uh, NGOs who are helping Lebanon. A lot of people from outside are helping Lebanon. The, the U.S. government is helping the U.S., uh, the uh, Lebanese army, and a lot of countries are helping, but not through the government, but through the NGOs and the uh, community, like municipality or other. Yeah, it's, as you said, Pierre, it's outside help. It's not you helping yourselves, your government helping the people there too. We've just been showing our viewers live pictures of, of people that are out in the streets. They're clearly angry. They're protesting. As you've said, there's just a lack of accountability about what happened here. And that's contributing to the economic devastation that, that the country is facing. Pierre, what do the people want? Do you think the government, people that want. the country is capable of finding a government that can bring accountability and that can tackle some of the economic issues that the country faces? People want reforms in this country. Right. People really don't want to change uh, the rulers of this country uh, who are since around 30 years, and uh, their uh, policy get us in this situation. So people are so angry. People want to eat. People want uh, to have a salary. Uh, and people uh, want a change. And uh, a change cannot be without election. And we are preparing ourselves to our next election to change these people, to change these rulers who are corrupted since 30 years, and all the governments in all the free countries are saying that these people are corrupted. So we are trying to have a change in this country, to have reforms, because AIDS cannot come without any reform. We cannot discuss with IMF without any reform. 
We need reform. We need change. We will fight for this change in a democratic way. And we, um, we pray for you and for your people. Pierre, thank you for joining us. Stay safe, please. And um, we think of you and your family and all those you represent, the president of Lebanon's Federation for Tourism there. So thank you. Next hour, CNN's Connect the World will bring you stories of dignity, of courage and hope as the people of Lebanon mark one year since the port explosion. Join Becky Anderson for our special report today at 6pm in Beirut, 4pm in London. We'll be back after this. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. stocks are up and running this Wednesday and we're off to a bit of a sluggish start after a record close for the S&P 500 yesterday. A weaker than expected read on U.S. private sector employment is actually weighing a little bit on sentiment, I think, here. Just 330,000 jobs were added last month. That's half of what was expected. Fears, I think, related to the Delta variant also adding to sentiment too. And of course, these two things very much tied Big cap earnings, though, continue to flood in. GM down by around 3%. The auto giant raised its yearly guidance, but earnings for this previous quarter coming in slightly lighter than expectations. And a bit of context here, too. GM still up more than 30% year to date, which is when you see these uh, price declines for these stocks. Bear that in mind. Robinhood, too. Finally, the IPO that could shares of the popular trading app rallying after Tuesday's 24% pop. They are finally above their $38 IPO price after last week's shaky debut. Wow, look at that now, trading close to $61. That's more like it. Fidelity pounding the table for the stock. A bit of a retail investor shakeout, I think, too. Now, asset manager Vanguard pioneering a novel way of encouraging its workers to get vaccinated. Any U.S. employee who gets the vaccine before October will receive a $1,000 bonus according to the company. Matt Egan joins me now. Matt, this is a case of businesses saying, look, we'll perhaps take steps to encourage you where governments can't or won't. That's right, Julia. Uh, Leave it to Wall Street to figure out a way to really get the attention of the unvaccinated. So Vanguard is saying that... um, Any employee in the United States that shows proof of vaccination by October 1 will get $1,000. Vanguard has 15,500 employees in the United States. So that means that if all of them took advantage of this offer, uh, that would be about $15 million in vaccine bonuses from Vanguard. Uh, Let me read you a a key quote from the company explaining the rationale here. Uh, Vanguard recognizes vaccines are the best way to stop the spread of this virus and strongly encourages crew to be vaccinated. As such, we are offering a vaccine incentive for crew who provide COVID vaccination proof. Now, this is another example of how aggressively some companies are moving to encourage people to get vaccinated. It also shows rising concern about the Delta variant and about the risk of even worse variants that could potentially evade vaccines. I think that uh, Harvey Spivak, the uh, executive chairman over at Equinox, I think he summed it up best. After Equinox announced a mandate for vaccines for um, employees and for uh, members, uh, Spivak told me that he thinks that business leaders have a responsibility to be bold and protect the well-being of communities. But he added, we shouldn't wait for government to make that happen. Yeah, you could be waiting uh, a while if you do. Matt Egan, thank you for that update there. 
Okay, now from the return to offices to the related ride-hailing recovery. Lyft is a pure-play ride-hailing company that operates in the United States and Canada. It saw a rebound in its most profitable journeys last quarter. Those are airport, night and weekend drives. This led the company's first ever adjusted profit. It also led to a chauffeur shortage as riders return before their drivers do. Joining me is the president and co-founder of Lyft, John Zimmer. John, fantastic to have you on the show. This was a solid set of numbers overall. Let's be clear. It seems you've recovered more quickly and more strongly, actually, than the expectations were suggesting. Yeah, it was an exceptional quarter. Uh, mm. Really proud of the, the team, grateful to the drivers and riders for coming back in record form. Uh, and, and yeah, year over year, we uh, more than doubled uh, the revenue growth. Talk to me about July as well, because we have seen a pickup in cases, particularly here in the United States. What have you seen in terms of the reaction in demand? We're still seeing increases in demand into July. Uh, obviously, more and more people are getting vaccinated, which is a great thing. Uh, and that's uh, leading to more people being comfortable going out. Uh, we're keeping a close eye uh, on the pandemic as we have throughout the last uh, two years, basically, a year and a half. Uh, and uh, we'll, we'll adjust if need be. But again, in July, we, we did see increased demand. And just in terms of the numbers here, at the end of June, you reported 17.1 million active riders. And so that my viewers are clear, that is nearly double the number of drivers that you had a year ago for a comparison at sort of peak pandemic. But before the pandemic, you had around 21 million drivers. How long is it going to take you, do you think, to get back up to those kind of numbers in terms of drivers? Because we all know labour the labor shortage in this country has been problematic and you've alluded to it too. Yeah, so that's riders. So we saw quarter over quarter, 3.6 million uh, additional riders uh, become active and the numbers uh, you quoted were, were on riders. On, on the driver's side, uh, quarter over quarter, we saw 50% increase in new drivers. Uh, so on that side of things as well, uh, we are seeing positive trends. Uh, but again, we, we are in the midst of a, a serious pandemic uh, we're going to be very thoughtful and careful uh, to, to balance the market and to make sure uh, those that are coming back are safe. Okay, so what about rehiring and hiring as you go forward? Yeah, for for are you talking about on the driver's side or the employees? Yeah, I'm at, talking at about on the driver's side because I've certainly seen rumors that you're having to add more sort of incentives to encourage drivers, whether that's sort of looking at benefits, how do you reduce drivers' expenses? Um, what are you looking at in terms of encouraging new drivers and actually retaining them too? And I'll be careful with my drivers versus riders because those two words are very close. I f forgive me for uh, mixing them up. Yeah, no, no worries. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're doing many things on, on the driver side. Uh, so uh, quarter over quarter, again, driver new drivers increase 50%. So bringing in those that hadn't driven before is important, but also obviously making sure drivers that have been on the platform and are coming to the platform are earning uh, more, more than, uh, or as much, or more than than they have before. So we're seeing all-time driver high earnings uh, in in top markets at thirty-five dollars an hour. As you mentioned, we're also helping out uh, with auto care. Uh, you know, one thing unique about Lyft is that we've built out auto care and other things to help drivers cut down their costs. As you mentioned, uh, and and then one of the things that we really invested in over the last two years is the marketplace technology. So making sure when drivers are out that we we make best of their time meaning instead of getting you know 1.5 rides in an hour if they can get two rides in an hour uh, and earn more money it's great for them it's great for riders and it's great for the business 
You know, anecdotally, and I see it sometimes on social media, people complaining about longer wait times. They complain about more expensive rides. What's your sense of that? Because while your drivers can be increasingly profitable, at the same time, you've got to keep your riders engaged and not look for alternative options. Yeah, it's a constant balance, one that yeah. uh, my co-founder and I focused on for 10 years. The market equilibrium is getting better. Uh, we're still not happy with you know the things you said with service times uh, and prices, and there's more ways to go. But we are coming out of a hopefully once-in-a-lifetime pandemic, uh, and I'm proud of the progress we're making. Fingers crossed to that quite frankly, um, sir. You mentioned innovation and the exciting parts of the business. And I think autonomous vehicle technology and what you've got going on at Lyft with partnerships there is something that we're all fascinated to hear. So what can you tell me about potential drives, autonomous riding in in Miami, Austin, perhaps in 2022? What can you tell us about this? Yeah, so the new partnership we announced with Argo and Ford uh, is just that we're going to be bringing... Uh, autonomous vehicles uh, first to Miami towards the end of this year uh, and to Austin with the target of next year. We also have a great partner in Motional uh, that's targeting 2023 uh, for fully autonomous launch uh, and continue to work with more partners. The Lyft platform or the Lyft network, we believe, is is the best way to bring autonomous mar- uh, autonomous cars to market uh, because it uh, has an amazing relationship with our customers. Uh, and the marketplace technology that I alluded to allows for each vehicle to be optimized uh, and, and get the best return uh, on the investors uh, who are bringing those cars to market. And will I pay more or less for an autonomous ride than I would for an ordinary ride? Uh, it's, it's still super early. I think <laughs> the goal is long term to drive more, more affordable rides. Uh, we believe that uh, in the markets we operate in North America, America and Canada, that uh, we can help people spend less money on transportation uh, as they bring more money onto the Lyft network. I know. I'm so excited about autonomous vehicle technology, though. In the short term, I'd probably pay more. John, congratulations on a solid quarter. Come back and talk to us soon, please. John Zimmer, president and co-founder of Lyft. Great to have you on the show, sir. Thank you. All right, new developments in the case of the Belarusian sprinter Kristina Timonovskaya. A plane thought to be carrying the Olympic athlete has now landed in Vienna, Austria. The flight changed course slightly over western Russia to avoid Belarus airspace. She was set to compete in the Olympics but asked for political asylum after saying her team was trying to force her to fly home. It happened after she publicly criticised Belarusian sports authorities for registering her for the wrong event. Olympics officials are investigating the case, but it seems she's safely in Vienna. All right, that's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Stay safe. I'll see you tomorrow. Marketplace Asia is up next. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. 
Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.